Hello and welcome to Stories, the True and the Fictional. As you can tell from the slightly different style of music, this is going to be a slightly different style of episode. It's something we call Story Chat, where we sit down with an author, a filmmaker or any kind of storyteller really, and talk to them about their life and their work in a real fun and laid back way. So sit back, relax, unless you're going for a jog, then run faster. It's story time. Hello and welcome to Stories, the True and the Fictional. We have with us today Matthew Holmes, all the way from South Australia, Melbourne. Where are you today, Matt? I'm in Melbourne, originally from South Australia, but I live in Melbourne now. Cool. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Should be fun. Should be interesting. Um, do you just for those random people from the internet that don't know much about you, just want to tell us a bit about you and what you do? Sure. I'm a uh, I'm an independent filmmaker um, from Australia. I uh, am a writer and director producer. Uh, I have spent the last twenty something years trying to carve out a uh, a, a career as that in this country, which has proved a very challenging pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I spend my days um, supporting myself however I can with other bits of like television and commercial work and things like that. Uh, and um, in the meantime, I write scripts, develop projects, and occasionally get out, get fortunate enough to go out and actually film something. So that's sort of my life in a nutshell. Cool. Um, well, we're going to hit you with the icebreakers. We give everyone. So, Ryan, you want to take the first one? I will. Okay. So, this one is the one that sort of just covers the, you know, what what you believe, like what you believe in, and what what you're passionate about. So, if you could get rid of one thing in this world, what would it be? I think if I could get rid of one thing in the world, it would be poverty, um, because I'm a big believer that poverty, that the root of all crime stems back to poverty. Yeah. Uh, that very. F- that if you ever, if very few crimes are ever committed out of, you know, just because people are completely horrible, there always will be those. But I think poverty seems to be the root of from which um, a huge amount of, uh, of crime and societal problems emerge. So if I could eradicate anything, I'd just get rid of poverty. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Top Couldn't notch. agree more. Couldn't agree more. So you, just for the record, you're choosing poverty over The Last Jedi. Yes, like if we could, if whoever's giving me this this wish, I would definitely tap him on the shoulder and say, "Hey, could we? Could you get rid of this last Jedi while we're at it?" Well, I mean, you did say you wanted to get rid of poverty, which is the main cause of crime, and to me, the last Jedi is definitely a crime. So you might have it knocked is. it all off. Yeah, well, hopefully, there's yeah, there's some in some way if it undoes the last Jedi, then that's the best wish anyone can ask for. We I just think, have to. So. We just have to connect the. Ryan Johnson to the poverty. Um, That's right. That's right. Somehow. Well, it still remains yeah, the no. only Star Wars movie I have not finished watching. Right. I've right. watched the that others the... many, many, many hundreds of times, but yeah, no. It, it is the last Star Wars film I watched. And oh. after that one, I walked out of the cinema and was like, I'm done. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So exactly. that was the end of that. All right. Something on your bucket list. Ooh, uh, I would love to make a film with Sam Rockwell. 
Oh, yes. That's a bucket list. If, if, yeah. if I could ever make a movie and work with Sam Rockwell, I would I would die a very happy filmmaker. So. <laughs> okay, if I can expand on that. If you if if you were able to do that and you he reached out somehow and said, let's do a movie, what yeah. kind of movie would you do with him? Oh I would like to make a um I, I don't actually know, uh, but okay. if I could if I could choose the genre, I think it would be a character piece. Mm-hmm. Uh and it would be probably um something that has uh something that's quite funny, but also dark, a dark edge to it as well. Um, because I think that's where he sits best. So I don't know. Maybe I'll be fortunate enough that in like 20 years' time when he's an actor that, you know, sort of in the Harrison Ford sort of caliber, and I might be established enough in 20 years' time to hire him and I can make a movie with him as an as an older gentleman, uh, still being Sam Rockwell, I'll, I'd be really happy with that. So, But I've got 20 years to write that script and pitch it to him. So I'll, I'll figure that out as I go. Excellent. Cool. Okay, so the next one's another one of my favorite questions. Um, we and we we do look. We're we're very open, but we will judge you on this answer. Um, <laughs> please tell us what you think the greatest sitcom ever made is. Okay, the greatest sitcom. I'll be honest and tell you, I don't watch a lot of sitcoms. I especially, mm-hmm. don't watch a lot of American ones, if any. So I'm not a great. I yeah. don't have a great. Thing. I'm aware of all the sitcoms, yeah. uh, but I'm not, I don't watch a lot of them. But for me, there's what I think is the greatest sitcom and then there's what is my favourite sitcom and they're okay, two yeah. different things. Oh, okay. I like them both, but there's my favourite and then what I think, And but the greatest I think is actually a superior sitcom. I'll go with this, with what I think is the greatest sitcom and, and that is the BBC version of The Office. Yes. <laughs> You're gonna. I'm. I'm a massive, massive Ricky Gervais fan. So you're always gonna. Yes, yes, yeah. and yes. So for me, for me, it's it's the is the office. That is the best sitcom. Um, for for me, my yeah. favorite sitcom though, the one that I return to all the time and find it as funny as the first time is the IT Crowd. Yeah, I'm just watching it at the moment. Well done. So oh, yeah, I agree. That that's my favorite, but I yeah. think Office is the best. So. Oh. And I'm always going to choose British comedy over any other yes. sitcoms. So. Yep, yeah, I agree. I've fallen down that rabbit hole in the last five, six years when um, I first saw uh, Ricky Gervais's office and then I went on yeah. and I watched things like Extras. Um, yeah. Afterlife on Netflix at the moment was was I really enjoyed that. That's another Ricky Gervais yeah. one. Derek, stuff like that as well. Yeah, I agree with you. Bring it on. British, <laughs> yeah. British sitcoms are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought maybe I would say Faulty Towers, the original, yep. but I watched it again uh, recently. I bought it on Blu-ray and watched uh, And while it's classic and, and you can't knock it, 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 it's still not quite as clever as I think is The Office. No, uh, I, I think comedy has gotten better and, and they've advanced it a bit more, but it's still yes. great. Perfect. All right. Um, do you have a zombie apocalypse plan? To be honest, I don't. I think I would probably just do like everyone would, which is pack the car with all my camping gear, head for the mountains and uh, try to pick up a firearm along the way. Yep. And and that would be my apocalypse plan. Um, I, I, and try to grow vegetables. So, yeah, that, <laughs> that would be it. So I'd grab my dog, grab the missus and, uh, yeah, and off I'd go. 
So um, I've got a good club. I've got like a, a matic handle <laughs> that I cut down to size that I keep for home protection. I'd be carrying that. So excellent. Yeah. Yeah, look, you can't go wrong with the mountains. Like, there's so much, so much, so much, like, just go bush. So many places to hide. So many things That's you can right. actually just pick up on your way and use as weapons if needed. Exactly. So, I, but I'd probably, you know, it'd be like an overcrowded camping space up in the mountains, I think, <laughs> um, in a zombie apocalypse. So, but, yeah. Everyone, everyone would have their generators going. And- <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Attracting everything, Yeah. I will say I'm not actually a big zombie fan. I don't like zombie movies. I, yeah, I don't okay. watch hardly any of them. Uh, I don't watch The Walking Dead. I, don't, I haven't yeah. seen World War Z or anything like that. I just don't yeah. like the whole. But I really like the 28 Days Later, 28 yes. Weeks Later. I really like those films. They 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 were like, yeah, okay, I can get into this because they didn't feel like zombie films. They felt like they were infected, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so it was a bit different and they moved fast and, and not slow. And, yeah, so I thought I thought they were great, those ones. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, good. So it feels more like a survival horror rather than a yeah, zombie. Than it, yeah, like the, the, the dead have risen. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. Oh, fantastic. Okay, the last of our icebreaker questions. You've just gotten a call from Elon Musk and he said, look, I've selected you. Matthew Holmes to test drive the new electric time machine. What do you do? Oh man, I thought long and hard about this thing because there's a lot of things. You know, it was like I want to go back to the beginning to see how we all got here for sure. Yeah, but it's like yeah, I will still come back, and people wouldn't believe me. So <laughs> I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do what Marty McFly did. I'm just going to go get a sports almanac. And set myself up for life. Yeah, that's what I'm well done. Do. Well done. I'm just done. gonna bet on. I'm just gonna get all the scores, make bets, and just make movies. Uh, so that's. I'm afraid Marty had the right idea. Yeah, and then um, you can also go back to when Sam Rockwell was a little baby, and just subliminally right. just say your name in his ear over <laughs> and over right. and over again, and then you'll meet him one day, and he'll it'll trigger him in his mind, and you'll exactly. make that movie. He will go, Matthew Holmes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's like, it'll, just, it'll, it'll feel like home to him. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, excellent. Oh. Great answers. Well, you passed the icebreaker. Yes. So let's get down to business. Yes. Um, where did it all begin for you with your filmmaking? Well, it began when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I, I grew up without a television most of my life because my uh my parents were both one it was the it was the late it was the 80s so they were very poverty stricken um and because of the recession and so on and so we we ended up swapping our tv for a car with a relative and um so i grew up without tv and we only ended up having tv on the weekends because my dad would work at the school and he'd bring the television home from the school so we could watch videos um so i had very little exposure to movies and then when i started seeing them it was overwhelming because i didn't grow up watching them like a kid you know just watching tv after school and stuff so when i finally started seeing things it it was just overwhelming for me and i just completely fell in love with movies and immediately how they how how they were made and uh, so i knew pretty much from that age that this is where I i wanted to make movies but I was also hugely into drawing at the time. And, and so drawing and art, sculpture, 
it sort of just immediately I found a, a love of animation and started doing animation um, in the stop motion sense because I was a big fan of like the Jason and the Argonauts and yeah. the Empire Strikes Back and they have got stop motion in them and so I learned all about that. So it sort of was a love of my of, of drawing and art and of course love of movies and that all sort of sort of came together and I knew from that age I wanted to make movies. I knew from age 14 I wanted to make a Ned Kelly movie um, and so I've just carried that with me ever since and have just been laser focused on being a filmmaker from from that age to today. Excellent. It's just I've just varied and broken out from animation, but I always knew that animation wouldn't be a permanent thing for me. So, okay. Speaking speaking about you've mentioned the stop motion. Um, so how did you get into it? And uh, you know, is it is it as tedious and frustrating as we can imagine it might be? It is. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's tedious. It's time consuming and it's extremely finicky. Absolutely. And, you know, I spent three years making a 13-minute animated film. But it just takes, there's not a lot of screen time payoff for the amount of work you put in. You don't get a lot of screen time in minutes for, for your work. That, for me, was the thing that ultimately sort of sealed the deal for me to kind of walk away from animation for good because there's so much time and effort goes into it and then you, but you just don't get a lot of screen time for your effort. Mm. Um and I and I was working as a professional uh, stop motion animator at a, in an animation company in Adelaide. And after ten years of of doing that, mostly working on commercials and short films, I just got tired of it. And um, and and was more my my heart was going more and more to live action drama. So I wanted to go there. Um, tedious, yes, but but it's also um, but like any part of filmmaking, all 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 filmmaking has that tedious aspect to it like editing it's very very finicky when you're out there directing it's very very finicky and so it, it didn't doesn't really feel any more or less tedious to me than any other aspect of filmmaking like writing a script or you know editing the movie uh it's just as tedious um i think it requires someone who's got a lot of patience stop motion um but it all seemed to make a lot of sense to me i never sort of was like, oh, this sucks one frame at a time because every frame made sense and I was working towards something and it just felt kind of normal. Like drawing a picture, you know, you don't, it doesn't instantly happen. You've got to spend the time and animation is much the same. So, um, yeah, I, and, and unfortunately stop motion has become a bit of a dying art mm -hmm. and, and, and um, it's not done as much. But I'm really hoping if I if my career can can blossom into something where I get a lot, I get a lot more opportunities. I really want to make a movie that does what the old movies did, where they blend stop motion with live action. Okay. And I think with technology today, we can do it in in, in a way that has not been ever done before, yeah. and actually start blending those two mediums again in a highly stylized way. So I don't think my stop motion days are over, but um, they're sort of in hiatus. Excellent. Maybe you can do a very dramatized version of the Smacko ads, like put some real backstory into it. <laughs> <laughs> I've done about as much as I want of Smacko ads. I tell you. <laughs> I've done too many Smacko ads in my, yeah. in my time. Yeah. Um, and I think I've animated, well, it works because I'm a, I'm a dog lover. I, you know, dogs, yeah. are, me and dogs are like that. You know, I can't yeah. go past a dog without wanting to pat it. 
But um, I've animated dogs more than probably anything in my in, in anything else in my life, um, with schmackos and the home hardware ads. So, um, yeah, probably no more dogs. Well, I, I noticed you you you're obviously a massive dog lover when you mentioned on the zombie apocalypse plan that you grab your dog and then your wife. So yeah, like, in that order. <laughs> oh, excellent. All right. Well, so. <clears throat> Let's talk about how you dived into uh, full features because um, Twin Rivers, brilliant film. Yes. I absolutely loved it. Um, oh, good. You've actually managed to see it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I tagged you when I watched it um, years ago and I asked, asked my mum wanted to know how many takes the flips took and, and all that stuff. Oh, right. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Well, it's been a while. Um, it's been so a while. What, um, yeah, just want to talk... Um, where did the idea come from? Why did you choose the um, for it to be a period piece kind of in the 30s, was it set? Yeah, yeah, in the late 30s. Um, well, I was, it's, I started that project around 2001. I didn't finish it till 2007. So it took me six years to make. Um, I, like I said, I was in animation at the time, but I knew I wanted to get into live action. And so I wanted to start, playing with live action and I bought myself a DV cam camera which was the new format at the time and the best format for young filmmakers because I couldn't afford to shoot on film it was too expensive and the only other form format was either film or VHS now VHS sucked as a format and I've done plenty of VHS movies in my teenage years and it doesn't look good but when DV cam came out it was like right now I can make something there was no such thing as standard definition uh, sorry high definition back then it wasn't even a word no one even knew what high definition meant. And digital, um, digital cameras like we use today weren't even invented. So um, I got that and wanted something. I was like, what do I shoot? And what I did was, uh, well, who's my, I sort of was inspired by my favourite director, which is Peter Weir, the Australian director. And the movie Gallipoli was one of the first films I saw as a kid. Remember, so going back to, when I first started watching movies and being introduced to them, my dad, knowing that I, I love, you know, war movies and, and war war stuff and Australian soldiers, he said, well, let's watch Gallipoli. And it was one of the first films I saw as a, as, as like a 13 year old or something. And it, I was absolutely blown away by that movie, emotionally destroyed <laughs> yeah. uh, by that movie. But that was the, I think one of the seminal films in my life that when I watched Gallipoli, and I realised the power that a movie could have, like the, how a movie could make you feel. Yeah, I think it's the thing that that stunned me more than anything is about how movies can make you feel. So, because um, I very much lived in my imagination as a kid, and and when and when I saw movies, it was like, wow, I can movies can take everything in here that I think and feel, and I can put them on there, and other people can see them and feel what I'm thinking and feeling. So. That's why I wanted to make movies. And so that was a huge influence. And therefore, Twin Rivers was a, as you can, there's echoes of Gallipoli in it. Not that there's a war in it, but, the, but everything before that takes place before the war is very, it's very visually similar to Twin Rivers. You know, the two guys walking through the desert, you know, their, their clothing and all that. So, and that just started off as a, a 15, 20 minute short film with my brother. Uh, like a bit of a mood piece, didn't really have much of a story. I just wanted to, I love the 1940s period. I just want to play in that world for a bit. And I just thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting, a story about a couple of guys travelling as swaggies 
and you know and it was it wasn't much to it but as we started filming and then we wrote a bit more and then we filmed that and we wrote a bit more and then we and then as it was going it kept growing into this feature yeah. and then eventually it was a 40 minute film and then it was 50 60 then it was an hour and now it's 90 mm. minutes and over the years the story kept changing and new characters got added and then we reshot all old, old scenes because the new one the ones we did two or three years ago sucked so we reshot mm. them and and more money came in and I was paying for all this with my savings and um, that's how it sort of was born and then it took me two years to put it all to edit it put it all together and get help uh, with sound and and uh, things like that um, I had a lot of trouble pretty much once I shot the movie it took me four years to shoot it then I really had no and I could edit it myself by then because digital editing had come in and you could do it on your home computer mm-hmm. now, by now so it was still pretty new but so I had an edited film, but I had no way to finish the sound and it needed a lot of sound work and I couldn't afford the sound. And I tried the film corporation in South Australia to try to give me a grant to help me. And I got rejected, rejected, rejected. So, but the, you may know the Australian filmmaker Rolf to hear. I've heard the name. He, he made, he did 10 canoes, the tracker, bad boy, Bubby. Oh yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. He was Adelaide based at the time and everyone sort of knew, you know, we all knew who Rolf to here was, but uh, someone in my film crew knew Rolf. Um, he had worked on a film of Rolf's a few years ago and he introduced me to Rolf. And so I would just send Rolf and he was gracious to see what I was doing and encouraging and so on. And, and then I just sort of kept in touch with how I was going. And, and then when he found out that the film corporation wasn't going to help me, he sort of took me under his wing and Help me recut the movie. Like I, I took my computer around to his house for a period of two months and just left it there. And then twice a week we'd go to his house and he'd sit in his living lounge room and I would sit there on the computer hooked up to his TV and he'd sit there and he would sort of help me recut the movie. Because oh, really? he said the cut that I had, which was like two hours and a bit, he said there's some fundamental errors in the storytelling and the structure of your movie, um, but we can fix them. So I sat there and I, it was like having a, a two-month film course education with Rolf to hear, yeah. listening to him point out and cut, point out and help me cut my movie uh, into, into a tight, yeah. into the tight thing that it, you know, that it was. And then he helped me write the, um, the voiceover because I was having trouble with that. And then he started bringing on people that he knew that he'd worked with on sound and all that and, and got them to help me and do it for free. So... I sort of owe him a lot because he helped me get the film to the finish and I learned so much along the way through him. And, uh, yeah, so that's sort of the Twin River story. And, boom, six years later, after starting it, it finally came out. Um, it got a, it got sold to, a, like, a cable channel and in Australia and got a DVD release here, but it really didn't do much more beyond that. It didn't do any film festivals or anything like that. Um, it did, yeah, it didn't go very far, but... Um, and in, in hindsight, it was a bit of a hard sell as well because it had no stars. It was a period piece. It was drama. You know, that's a hard thing to sell for a low-budget mm. indie film. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't want to go the route that everyone else was going, which was I thought that if I could make a period piece look really authentic and tell a really good story and that that would impress people and then they would give me more work or give me a job or you know, give me a grant to make another film. 
rather than just go the horror way and make a shocky horror with blood and people getting off and, and everything. Cause as I was doing twin rivers, Wolf Creek was just coming out mm-hmm. and, um, and that was a huge success. And I thought, I don't want to go down the, the violent horror way. That's not really the kind of films I want to make. And I thought this would impress people if I could pull it off on a low budget, but it really didn't impress anybody. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a, oh. yeah. so it sort of fizzled that it fizzled on it was sort of dead on arrival in a way. Um, so it was a bit disappointing when I, when then, I, when I finished. <clears throat> now we move on to what I, I really enjoyed as, as I, I'm not a massive fan of, I hope I don't offend you when I say this <laughs> of, of Bush Ranger films. I've seen some, I've seen some, and, 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 and in talking with Jamie, I think it is because of the inaccuracies. And I'm a history buff. I love my history. And I'm one to sit there and go, well, that's not right, you know. <laughs> but then I sat down and watched your film, The Legend of Ben Hall. And it immediately wanted me, I want to, I want you to do an Ed Kelly film. <laughs> like I'm it's not even if if I yeah. So tell us about the legend of Ben Hall, how that all came about, the you know, how that was made and everything, because I think it's a fantastic film. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm glad that it appeals to appeal to you, even though you're not usually a Bush Ranger fan. Uh, fan. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that I, I think one of the reasons maybe for maybe why you responded to it is that even though, yes, I made a Bush Ranger film and I love Bush Rangers and, and all that, what I didn't try to do was make a Bush Ranger film. No. And yes. I see a lot of productions where they've tried to make a Bush Ranger movie but what I tried to make was the story of a man who happened to be a bush ranger. Yes. And tell the true story of a man who happened to be a bush ranger. So it's a shift of, of it's a shift of, um, I guess, approach to, to the material. Because I see it when I see a lot of low-budget Westerns, like American Westerns. You can tell they love Westerns and they've gone out to make a Western. And mm-hmm. so suddenly it's everyone's acting like cliches and stereotypes that we see in Westerns because they're just, they think they're making a Western. So they, they're, they're pulling out all of the, the Western tropes. And um, rather than just making a film about characters that set in the West, it'll become a Western just by that. Exactly. Virtue alone. But, you know, you're not trying to make a, you're not trying to force it to be this stereotypical Western. So that sort of was the approach with Ben Hall. Don't try to make it a Bush Ranger film. Make it about this man. Um, I started after Twin Rivers. I was okay. What am I going to do next? And I was actually telling a friend of mine that I was writing a, another film with that I still want to make called Territorial, uh, which is a which is an Australian monster movie about the Bunyip. Oh, and awesome. um, and I wanted to. We were writing that together and. I remember saying, man, I, like I said, I always want to make an Ed Kelly film. And so I said to my friend, it really sucks they made that Heath Ledger film in 2002 because I always wanted to make a Ned Kelly film. Now I can't. And then he said, well, there's more interesting Bush Rangers out there than Ned Kelly. And I thought, and I never heard of any. And he said, look up Ben Hall and Frank Gardner. So I did that, fell in love with the story immediately, bought all the books read them like in two weeks and then I was writing a screenplay and for the next two years after that after Twin Rivers I was writing this Ben Hall screenplay and then it turned out to be 300 pages long was that fat 
It was the entire chronicle of, of Gardner, Ben Hall, the whole lot. And I started shop, trying to shop that around and every single person I took it to in the film corporation, the, the, the producers that I knew, the people, like the connections I'd made between Rivers, every single one of them said, you will never make this as your second feature, ever. It's too big. No one wants to see Bush Ranger films. No one knows who Ben Hall is. Forget about it, forget about it. It's too expensive. And because um, this is going to be like a $30 million movie, you know, huge. And so I had to accept that. I put it on the shelf and I thought, I'll make that when I'm 55 years old and I've got mm-hmm. 10 films under my belt and I can afford it. And I've got, the, I've got the power to make that film. And then the years went by. Um, I was trying to get all these other projects off the ground and they weren't happening. And then I remember thinking, I really would just love to play in the Ben Hall world for a little bit and maybe shoot a little something that could be like a teaser to show what Ben Hall could be because the script that I had written was starting to get some interest in America. Uh, Some American people had seen it. They wanted to option it and they actually wanted to sort of option it off of me and then try to get a big director like Mel Gibson or someone else to direct it because they really loved the idea. And so I thought, well, there's still something here. I think the Americans might like my Ben Hall movie. And that sort of reignited my interest. And that's what gave me the idea. Why don't I make a little, a little piece of the movie. Like, why don't I just shoot the last 10, 15 pages of my script, like the the um, the, the death of Ben Hall? Mm-hmm. Why don't I shoot that? And that can be my calling card for potentially making a feature. And that's why I read, then I ran the Kickstarter campaign for it. Um, and it was really ambitious, $75,000. I didn't think I'd get there, but I knew I couldn't do it for cheaper. And we ended up getting $130,000. So uh, there was just such an interest in it. So we um, decided we'd make it a 40-minute film and because we had extra money. And we started shooting that and we shot for about two or three weeks and it was a bit of a disaster. Um, we didn't get everything we needed. There were problems, weather, there's all these issues that we had. We had bitten off more than we could chew. But our footage was really cool. And we looked back at what we'd shot and we're like, wow, that looks really cool. So I, all I had, all I could do with this footage, because it was un, incomplete, was all I could do was cut a trailer. So I cut a trailer and I showed some producers that I was working on other projects with and they saw that trailer and, and they were like, whoa, this looks amazing. Have You, you should make this a feature. I said, well, I can't. You're not going to be able to get me my $30 million for, my, for the whole thing. They said, well, can't you do it for about $1 million? About, make it for $1 million. You've already shot, you know, 20% of the movie. Now go and we'll get a little bit of money and we'll finish the rest. I said, it can't be done. It's a gigantic movie. And they said, uh, well, make it smaller. So I thought, I didn't actually want to do it. I thought, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to compromise my Ben Hall movie. But I thought, oh, look, it's the doors seem to be opening. So what I did is I took that Ben Hall script and I ripped out the first two thirds of it and then got the last act of that movie. And then I just expanded that into the full feature. And then we managed to scrounge up enough private investment based on that trailer that I'd cut, uh, enough private investment to then keep filming and um, put it all together and, and, and make the movie that you see today. So that's sort of how it came into being. It was a bit, it wasn't my intention to make that Ben Hall film my next film. I wanted to make the big expensive one 20 years from now. Yeah. But for some reason, this Ben Hall, this version of Ben Hall wanted to be born and it just, we just followed the, followed the trail. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's, 
I said, and, you've got someone like Jamie who loves the Bush Rangers, like Bush Rangers and, and knows all this. And then you've got someone like me who has only seen the Heath Ledger Ned Kelly movie. And for me to watch this movie today, um, I, as I said, I said to Jamie as soon as it was finished, I want him to do a Ned Kelly movie <laughs> because it will be the most accurate, the most amazing Ned Kelly story ever told. Well, that's our goal. And we have yes. a project. We have a Ned Kelly project all lined up. Uh, we have been pitching it to Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. Netflix Australia, Stan, mm-hmm. Apple TV. I've got a whole brochure about it. Um, I've got it. I've got to think. I've got it right here with me, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, called Glen Rowan. Mm-hmm. And it's a, we, we showed him this little brochure. You know, we've, we've plotted out this epic six-part miniseries. Wow. Which... Is an hour every hour every episode is an hour long and it starts it starts pretty much when Ned Kelly as a young man and the the, the problems he had with that with the law and then when he hit out in the mountains and killed those cops it starts there and then it ends at his sort of execution and it's six episodes so it's six hours um, and we've got it all planned out we know where we're going to film it we know all that stuff I've got really great Ned Kelly historian people involved but we just can't get the traction on it. And we did try. We really did try. Um, but, I, again, I think that'll just have to be one of those projects that I'm going to put over there and when yeah. the time is right, it's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, it'll, 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 it, I really want it to be the, the, the Ned Kelly film to end all Ned Kelly films. Yeah. yeah. You know, the one where once you've seen that, there's no reason to make another one. That, that's yeah. it. Like, It'll just that'll just be the Ned Kelly movie or the Ned Kelly series or whatever the definitive telling of that story, and the the lengths and the historical accuracy that we've gone to already just in the in the script because we've written some of the scripts already. It's just yeah, it's mind boggling the level of detail of, of historical research that's gone into it already. So yeah, I I really hope to get a chance to make that one day. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, on on the topic of um, you know um inaccuracies in films because a lot of these Ned Kelly films have inaccuracies like like when I watched the Heath Ledger one I didn't mm-hmm. know much about Ned Kelly and then I learned about Ned Kelly and then I got really annoyed <laughs> um, I was exactly the same yeah. so I went to this I went to the theater I heard they're making a Ned Kelly film I saw they got Heath Ledger and I thought that's a great choice but I was pissed that they had made because I was in the I was in the second year of shooting Twin Rivers, and then they announced and because I was like I'm going to make Twin Rivers and that's going to give me the key to make my Ned Kelly film. Yeah. But then all of a sudden they announced a Ned Kelly film and I was like oh no I'm I'm too late you know I missed the boat I was my career didn't take off and so um but I was like oh well they've got Heath Ledger and they've got a huge budget it's probably going to be great. So I rocked up opening weekend to see Ned Kelly. And I honestly didn't actually know much about Ned Kelly. I just knew Man in the Armour and I thought mm-hmm. that was cool. And I'd never seen a Ned Kelly film. I watched it and then I sort of walked out of the theatre thinking, I liked it, I think. I thought I thought it would be more. Than, I, think, I thought the story would be grander than that. Like I thought it would be bigger. And I thought it was pretty, meh. And then when I learned about it, I was like, oh, they missed, they, they, yeah, they missed the mark. Yeah. They had a huge budget and a great story and they shaved it down to something almost unrecognisable. Yeah. 
I think um, remembering watching it, I think I enjoyed it as a film. Like I enjoyed Heath Ledger playing Ned Kelly. I enjoyed, you know, the supporting cast. Jeffrey Rush was great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but even even the soundtrack, I enjoyed the soundtrack. But then it's beautiful music. I still I listen to the music a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but but Bernard Fanning wasn't it? He did the song for it. Yep, yep. That like it had some really good stuff in that production. Um, actually, a lot of the a lot of the costumes in Ben Hall were from the Ned Kelly film. Um, they all have little tags on the back that say Ned Kelly um, <laughs> because our costume designer had bought a lot of the Ned Kelly stock after that film was made. So there's a bit of crossover there. Um, but the, yeah, I thought it had, it had aspects that were really good. But what I went for when I went to see that Ned Kelly, I culturally knew enough about Ned Kelly that his last stand was going to be huge. You know, it was going to be this, he's going to duke it out with the cops and his armour right. and it's going to be big, you know. And then in that film, he's down in, like, I t- timed it, 25 seconds. Wow. Wow. From getting up and starting to shoot from him then hitting the dirt and he's caught, 25 seconds. <laughs> and I just thought, and that's what I came to the movie to see. I came to see the showdown. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's the showdown I got. And I was like, and what I thought leaving the theatre is I thought, I wanted the showdown. And then I thought, oh, well, I guess that's what really happened. He must've just got shot a couple of times and we've all made a big deal about it. But then I found out, no, that gunfight went for about 25 minutes. That showdown with Ned Kelly shooting at the cops lasted 25 minutes. And that's when I thought, nah, there's more to be done here. And so that's the, that's the version of the Ned Kelly story that we want to tell in our series called Glen Rowan, where we will dedicate half an entire episode to that shootout. Oh, you have to. Kelly and the cops. Yeah. So, you know, and, um, yeah, so like you, I was a bit, yeah, once you learn, you're like, oh, oh well. So, but back to your question, um, why do you think films take take liberties? I think there's a number of reasons they take liberties. Um, number one, and I think this is the, probably the biggest one and probably the biggest one that I get annoyed about is they just don't respect, they don't respect the history. Yeah, and they yeah. don't respect that they have a responsibility to tell the history as yeah. accurately as they that is, that it is within your means. Yep. You know, we know you can never do it fully accurate, and even Ben Hall is not one hundred percent accurate. It's just as accurate as I could be with what I had, uh, the money that I had, the time I had, and also the amount of screen time that I had. Yeah. So I made it as accurate as I could within those bounds. So I feel like I did my best to do that and, and just and honour the spirit of the history. Um, and because you've always got to make a nip and a tuck and you've always got to, you know, shorten things. And I, and I understand it and I don't mind if films do that. But when they completely disregard or disrespect the history and there's not even a sense of, like, duty of care to the history because people are going to watch it and think, that's real, especially if you exactly. slap based on a true story. And when they do something that's completely off the rails, that I just think that's disrespectful to the history, and that that annoys me um, yeah. more than anything. Uh, I also think they do it if they're changing it too far. I just keep asking, well, then why do you want to tell this true story? Isn't yeah. it interesting enough on its own? Why do you want to change it? Um, and usually they're not great reasons. They're um, you know their studios saying, oh. You need a love interest. You got to have a love interest, and that's what happened to Ned Kelly. 
um, they put that character in because that, that Naomi Watts character in because the studio demanded it. And they, and they wanted it more like a Robin Hood movie, so they took out some of the complexities of, of Ned Kelly being, you know, maybe a bit more grey and a bit more flawed because mm-hmm. Ned Kelly's a pretty flawed character and um, they wanted him to be more heroic. So studio notes come down and yeah. that's a bad reason to, to change history because yeah. studio yeah. notes, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, those, I think those are the two big reasons. Um, yeah, they just don't care. Or, or they're just doing it for the wrong reasons. Like they were trying to get more bums on seats or something. So mm. frustrating. I'm going to let you take the next question, Jamie, because oh, yeah. I really <laughs> want to talk about, I really want to um, talk about something, the next one. Yeah. So um, just in general, like um, what do you look for in a film? Mm. Like, like when you're sitting down, you're watching a film, um, what makes it good? Mm. Yep. That's a good question. And one I thought long and hard about before we jumped on. Um what makes a movie good and what do I look for in a movie? Personally, I don't give a shit about genre. Mm-hmm. I'll watch any movie in any genre, but nearly every, any genre. And um, I think a good movie can be anything. Um, I think what it is is what makes a movie good, though, I think is twofold. It usually comes down to two things. Um Good filmmaking. I think you've got to have someone who's telling this story, the director or the team with the director, that understand the craft of telling a story with film. You know, you can have all the bells and the whistles and the budget and everything, but if you haven't got craftsmen from the director down who know what they're doing, it doesn't matter how good your script is and it doesn't matter if your idea or story is good, it'll still stink because there's not that understanding of the cinematic language and that's that is being that that's telling the story through this medium because it is a it is a medium that requires a lot of understanding if you want to go out and make one which is why you know amateur films for whatever reason they just you know not it's not just they haven't got any money but they just suck or many of them suck Mm-hmm. And they're just unwatchable, and you just don't just want to turn them off because there's not good craft there, mm-hmm. and it's, they're not they don't know how to tell a story um, using the medium. So you've got to have the, those people. And secondly, I think you've got to have a, a really good um, foundation, which is your screenplay, your story, and and in in tandem, a good story and a good screenplay, um, one that knows the principles that hook an audience and um, and create, um, make, make people sit there and pay attention. And that's a really, that's actually harder than people realise, is, is a story that will make someone sit for two hours and pay attention, especially nowadays when, when, when yep. your phone is next to you and you can just go, uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> so if you can, you've got to hold, and, and I think that's something that film, I didn't, I didn't ever did film school. Twin Rivers was my film school. So um, I learned a lot of this stuff along the way and picked it up from the from the mentors and the pe- like the directors I worked with at Anifex, Rolf Tahir and other people. I learned this because I knew I loved films, but I didn't actually truly understand them as as much. When I made Twin Rivers, I didn't understand the craft of filmmaking as much as I understand it now. 
but there is this, it is like baking a cake. It, there is a bunch of, there's a recipe that makes this stuff work. Yeah. And if you learn the recipe, you can actually, you can actually make a movie interesting if you follow the recipe, but there is a recipe. It's not magic. And it's not because you just, you've got a great idea. It, it, there is actually a plan to it and a, and a, and a formula now the formula can go too far, like Hollywood. Once you know, once they got hold of the formula, they tried to add it to everything, and you get formulaic movies. I think you need to have creativity, but you got to know those those basics. And that was one of the things that Rolf really taught me when he saw my film. He could see that I knew the language of cinema enough to shoot scenes correctly, direct actors properly, but he saw that I couldn't, I didn't know how to structure the movie properly. And that's what he taught me, how to structure the movie, first act, second act, you know, first act turn, mid-act turn, third act turn, inciting incidents, all those things. I had had those movies, those items were in my story sort of almost by subconscious, but they had to be shaped. And, um, and I think if filmmakers can learn that formula, they can learn those principles, you, you almost can't go wrong. And so I think that's what makes a good movie because if you tell me, I don't know, what do you think is a good movie? Just pull one out of what's a favorite? Uh, well, my favorite is Back to the Future. Back to the Future is one of the best examples of what I'm saying that you could give me. It is one of the it is one of the best and tightest and efficient screenplays that exists. It's perfectly, it's got a perfect story, it's got a perfect it's got everything that's perfect and it, and it functions like an absolutely well-oiled machine. And that's why now, what, 30 years later, we keep watching it and enjoying it because all of the principles that I've been talking about are absolutely meshing. Everything's meshing. You've got great craftsmen, great actors. Everyone's on their A-game in the service of a fantastic story doing everything right. If you look mm. at that film, there's not one shot piece of dialogue or anything in that story that isn't being paid off or referred to later or set up for a for a payoff some other time everything has got everything to do with the story that we need to know right from the opening frames of all of the clocks and all the stuff on the that we pass everything's telling a story even in the subconscious level everything is telling you a piece of information that you need later to make this story all work yeah. And that's why the movie works perfectly. And I think that craft is what more filmmakers need to study. And it is gets it gets lost or looked over, I think, that studying that craft. Because yeah. that's what makes the movie good. Perfect. Couldn't agree. No, the great answer. Now, my the, the thing I want to talk to you about is I'm a massive horror fan. I yeah, love yeah. my any kind of horror, slasher, paranormal, supernatural, you name it, I'll watch it. Um, yep. When Jamie mentioned The Artifice um, and mentioned that it was of the horror, like, I thought, okay, I'm going to look, we need to we need to watch it. And we watched it just before, I found it on a website. We watched it just before we uh, spoke to you and oh, I was hooked. I know the legend of the, the Black Eyed Children very, very, very well. Yeah. Um, because I do all that kind of research and it was fantastic. So what, what led you to go down the path of creating this, this short film? Uh, that happened just before 
That happened just before Ben Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a few months before I started Ben Hall campaign. I shot that film. We shot it in two days. Um, I had always I had heard about the Black Eyed Kids, you know, through the internet and stuff, and mm-hmm. I thought it was an interesting tale. I don't remember when I first heard about it, but I thought that's kind of creepy and spooky. That'd make a cool film. And I always liked the Village of the Damned. Yes, kind of movie with the creepy kids. Kids are kids are creepy, you know. Yeah. At the best of times. <laughs> Children so, are born uh, as well. That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, innocence that's being converted into something evil was always a great horror trope. Um, so, because you normally kids are innocent, trustworthy, and kind, yeah. and but you know, if you flip that and you make them untrustworthy, evil, and malevolent, it, you've got something. That's usually what works with horror. So, um, yeah, I, I thought, well, because I, I, I struggle writing short films. I don't make many short films. I don't write them. I don't try to, I, I don't have an interest in watching them. I want to make features. But, again, it was like, well, why don't I, I, I want to make a feature about the Black Eyed Kids one day because that could be very marketable. So I'm always thinking about what's marketable as a filmmaker. You've got to think yeah. money, like you've got to have your money hat on. What, what will sell and push my career to the next level? And so I thought, well, that would sell. And so I didn't have a screenplay for it, like a feature screenplay. So I really just read all the reports of the Black Eyed Kids and then I came up with my own encounter based yeah. on what I'd read. And um, and we just went out and shot it for fun because I was, I had, it was it had been five, six years since Twin Rivers and I hadn't still hadn't made another film. And I was like, I've really got to get back on the saddle <laughs> and direct again, even if it's just a short film. So we just did it for fun. Um and I had lots of interest from the States. At the time I was represented, I had um, representation in the States as a director, writer. They turned out to be sharks and not very nice people in the end. But they were when they saw that poster and they saw that short film, they were all over it. And one of the producers of the Final Destination oh, wow. series was all over it. And wow. he tried to, he actually tried to take it away from me because he wanted to make the next big franchise movie and he thought The Artifice was it. But I said they were sharks and I ended up sort of bailing and getting getting away from them. But there was certainly interest in it. But I couldn't crack the story as a feature. I actually couldn't figure out. Mm. Uh, it works as a, for a short film and, and The Black Eyed Kids works wonderfully for, you know, campfire ghost stories. Mm-hmm. But as a feature, I could never crack that story what is this in 90 minutes i had to figure out the questions that are the most difficult to answer and also the things you sometimes don't want to answer in horror which is where do the black guy kids come from yep and what do they want Mm -hmm. and then what happens when they get inside Mm -hmm. and those three questions every time i tried to come up with one i wasn't happy with 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 the answer Mm -hmm. i didn't like it it's almost like that it ruined the mystery every time i answered any one of those questions and so, but I couldn't make a movie that didn't answer them. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a story. So exactly. I've never been able to crack it as a feature um, yet. And I've, me and my co-writer have tried, but we don't think we've, I don't think we've cracked it yet. So I don't know if I'll ever make a feature of that. I have written a horror though. Uh, I wrote a horror when I was in Italy for three months. I needed something to do for three months while I was holidaying there. <laughs> uh, so I wrote a horror film, uh, a script for a horror called um, Blackjack. Oh, and it was a, a again trying to think, think, thinking low budget, you know, uh, one location or roughly one location, low budget. What can I do? 
Um, so I came up with the idea of a man who um, has agoraphobia can't leave his house because the big question is, Nora, if something's bothering you at night, leave your house. Yeah. But he uh, he can't leave his house because he's got agoraphobia and this mm. entity keeps appearing in his house and tormenting him. And so I came, we come up with a story for that. So And that was that's my first foray into horror because I'm not generally a horror fan. Mm. Um, unlike you, I tend to keep away from horrors. The horror section behind me is this big. Um, <laughs> very few horrors, because um, I don't, I don't get a kick. I don't get a kick out of violence or splatter or, or yeah. hideous, yeah. horrible things happening. But um, there are some horror films that I really appreciate. How again? How they make me feel? How does a movie make me feel? A yes. horror film can really make me feel frightened and and creeped out and should get sent send chills up my yeah. spine now i respect it because it's making me feel something but yeah. most horror films to me make me feel feel something i don't want to feel which is usually just disgust yeah. i don't I, i'm just that disgusts me i'm not i know i don't want to feel disgust but i want to feel i want to feel scared and i want to yeah. feel thrilled so for me it was about finding a story that thrilled and scared me and then i'll then yes then i'll make that horror film so I had to find that story. But also it had to say something. That's one thing with every movie I make, you know, whether it's Bush Ranger or Ned Kelly or if it's horror or what I'm doing now, which is a drama, um, there's, I always think the best movies, and this, this maybe goes back to your other question, what makes a good movie? Um, there's always, movies should always be about something that's, Interesting, the window dressing of a movie, say Aliens, right? Yeah. Great movie. Yes. It's all about aliens and marines and tech and going in and this great horror adventure sci-fi shoot 'em up and it's wonderful. But that's not really what the movie's about. The movie's about a, a, a woman who's, a, a, a mother who's lost her child reconnecting with a child who's lost her mother and them bonding and finding each other. That's what it's about. And I think every good movie has those, those two layers, yeah. which is what I try to bring to Ben Hall and I try to bring to every film, uh, as every filmmaker should, is, okay, it's about bush rangers and guns and horses and history and it's all cool, but this is the story about a man trying to reconnect with his son and dealing with his own yeah. torn personality between his good and bad. That's what the movie's really about. Yes. And so... I had to find a horror story that had that second story underneath. What is this really about? And that's what I found with Blackjack. This is it, it, sure it's about a ghoul that, that that oppresses a man in his home, but it had to say something else. It had to have that underlying theme that I was trying to talk about. Mm. And when I found that, I was like, great! Now I can make and write a horror film because I've got I've got the two story. I've got the two yeah. things, the two levels now. So, well, I can yeah. assure you, once that gets made, and I know it will, because it sounds amazing, I will be front and center for that. Um, cool. But one, one other question, just before we move on to your what you're working on at the moment, in terms of horror, I totally agree with you. I'm yet to really find something that has scared the bejesus out of me. Um, you know, I'm I don't scare very easily, but I know you said your horror section there is quite small. Do you have one a uh, horror movie that you would consider your favorite horror? movie Ooh. let me have a little <laughs> yeah. look see if i can remember no, my no. favorite horror like film. A go or a go-to horror movie when you're like you know what i, I really want to get 
I really feel like watching a horror, like a slasher or a paranormal or whatever. What's your go-to? Oh, it starts blending a bit with like thriller. Yeah. I, I like Seven, but it's not a horror. Yeah. Um, Psychological thriller, I'd say. Like it's it's on the cusp. It's on the cusp. Yeah. And I like that. I think. I think my my favorite true horror like film that is actually horror. My personal favorite is The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like mm-hmm. The Exorcism as well, but I like The Exorcism, Exorcism of Emily Rose because it is one of the few movies that I was watching during the day. Yeah. And I turned off all of the lights in the house so I could watch the projector and watch it in the dark. But I actually got halfway through it and turned it off and wow. went outside into the sunshine and went. Ooh, you know, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Okay, this this is creepy as fuck, and because <laughs> it affected me that much, like it got, it didn't scare me. Like, oh, it was more just, it just got under my skin yep. and just creeped me out. Um, that I was like, respect you, you have creeped me out, mm-hmm. and that's that's so that that's probably the horror film that I'd say I like I like the most because it's yeah. um, but if it's say like more of a blood horror, you know, and so yeah. I would say 28 days later. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That was more, that question was more for me because I'm always looking <laughs> for, when you describe what your ideal horror movie is, it's, it's the same for me. And I just thought I haven't watched the exorcism of Emily Rose for a very long time. So it might be time to go back. Maybe that'll be the one. So I appreciate yeah. that. That's all right. So let's talk about what you're working on right now. Um, so what is it? And is Adam Wilson in it too? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll answer the question. Uh, we'll start with Adam Wilson. Yes, he's in it. Oh. <laughs> he's in it. He's not in it for very long, but he's in it. Um, he's, he's you know, I've put him in everything I've ever made. So it just... Yeah. When I came to making, it was like, well, there's got to be something for Adam here. I've got to put yeah. Adam in it. It didn't feel right. He's kind of my Bill Paxton, yeah. James Cameron. <laughs> yes. I've got to put him in analogy. everything now. So Yeah, I love that analogy. So good. So, yeah, he's in it very briefly. Um, and uh, he came and did an, an evening of filming for us. Um, it's called The Cost. Mm-hmm. And it was born out of... Um, frustration much like twin rivers when ben hall came out there's a lot of disappointments about it's um it didn't get as far as i wanted it to go um and it was it was a hard sell to a lot of places and especially here in australia more it did better in america than it did in australia both financially and getting out into the you know, it did better. It was better received in America in the film festivals, in the general public, and on television and streaming. Much better in in the US and in the and in Europe than it was here in Australia. And I I lay the blame pretty fir- firmly at our Australian distributors who did a really and continue to do a terrible job um, of the of the film and really let it down. And so I think um, so. I was a bit and and it's and. For the last five years since that film has been released, I have been trying to get project after project up. Blackjack, um, you know, the other film I was telling you about, Territorial. Uh, I had an Australian novel, Bluefin, um, by Colin Tealy I was trying to get up. Um, but when Stormboy tanked, there was no point in pursuing that anymore. So I had project after project nearly, nearly happen and then fall over. 
Mm. I couldn't get my Ben Hall sequels up because Ben Hall had not made enough money. So, um, and again, I hit the five-year mark and I was like, oh, my God, like, I've got to make another film. I've got to get back on the bandwagon, but I don't want to do another no-budget, low-budget film again because they are a nightmare to make. They are just so hard. And so I was encouraged by my wife and, and a friend, look, let's just make something. Go and write something small. Don't forget period, forget Bush Rangers, forget all the big, all your big ideas. Write something really small and personal that you can do with like three actors. And, and of course, that was a challenge. How, how do you make that yeah. interesting? What on earth? But I had a kernel of an idea I had from a few years ago that I thought, Again, that's an interesting question, an interesting theme. And I thought, okay, let's write a story about that. And I really just looked at what I had. I, I knew I had a certain amount of actors that I could rely on to jump on board and do a, a no-budget, unpaid thing. And, uh, and I knew I had an access, some access to some property from people that I'd met on Ben Hall. And so I looked at what I had and I thought, write to my means. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this yes. story called, called The Cost. It wasn't called The Cost at that point, but it was... Um, and what it was, the germ of the idea was it came from, I'm sure we've all thought this, when you watch a documentary or you read a news report or you see a movie where the bad guy kills the wife or the kid or something and you're watching the movie or watching the doco and you go, you know what, if I was that dad or that husband, I'd wait for that guy to get out of prison and then I'd take care of him myself. You know, I would take justice into my own hands and deal with him my way. And I thought, that's an interesting question. What would happen if someone, or in the case of my movie, two guys, got hold of the person that they want to do that to and did it? What happens when two ordinary people follow through with that that thirst for revenge and, and that vendetta? And I thought not like a revenge film like Bruce Willis, you know, walking into the bad guys and blowing yeah. them all away, but a film that treated it with absolute seriousness with absolute normal people. What And they wanted to dispense their form of justice and every all their revenge fantasies that they've had in their minds all these years of having lost this person and what they want to do and they execute the perfect crime and, they, and they're going to get this guy do away with him and get away with it that's what they're going to do i thought that's an interesting idea and an interesting theme and so that's where the movie was born out of and so i wrote that story what would happen if and um yeah and so wrote it and and it was very different screenplay to what i ever written it was much more violent than anything i'd ever written before and but I showed it around and people seemed to really respond to the material and thought the script was a really interesting read, like sort of one of those, a lot of people said it was one of those, I, I couldn't put it down. I had to yeah. I had to see what happened in this, in this script. Again, just following the principles of what makes a good script work that I had learned. Mm-hmm. And um, so we went out and started shooting it and I managed to get a little bit of investment, um, you know, $10,000 here, $10,000 there, $2,000 here, and just cobbled together enough money to just get a bunch of people and go, right, let's just go out and shoot it. And, and then COVID hit. Yeah. And, and so we had to delay it. We had to just sit for a year and do nothing. And then we started it and then we had to break for six months and keep, then come back and keep filming. And, 
but along the way, uh, you know, the movie has grown and evolved. It wasn't easy to film, even though it was a very small cast. It's ended up being harder than Ben Hall. Mm. And um, But we're, we're on the tail end of it now. We've only got six days left to film. I've edited 95% of the movie. Um, seems to be flowing together pretty well. And, and I've now got a, a company that came on board to help do, do all the sound and post-production and, and all that. So it's, it's, it's gaining momentum and, I, and it should be finished by mid this year. So, yeah. So have you got a release date for it yet or? I don't have a release date, but I know the film will be finished around July, mid July, um, all going to plan mid July when it gets released. Don't know. Um, I would assume it probably uh, on the ta- a little bit later in this year, it'll get released in some form somewhere i don't know yet we don't know where it's going to go because we don't really know what we've got yet you know we don't we don't know how it's going to be received uh, you just don't know because it's a bit of an unknowable it's not like a a zombie film or a vampire film you just know you're going to be able to sell that and you know yeah. pretty much everywhere in the world and no problem this is this this film is like it's different to anything i've made and it's and it really isn't like any film i know um it's sort of like a deliverance movie um, oh, okay. It's sort of, it's part deliverance, part mean creep. It's part prisoners, part. It's just a, it's a bit of a, bit of a mix of things, but nothing, but not, um, but not like any of them either. So right. I don't really know what I've got yet, and I don't really know how people are going to respond. So mm. it's all a bit, uh, it's all a bit, it's new waters, mm. new waters yeah. for me. I can't wait for that one. That sounds right up my alley. It sounds amazing. Just so you know, I, hope, these, I hope. What's that? If these were all books, he'd be buying them right yeah, now. Yeah. We, we've okay. interviewed a fair few authors, and he's literally bought every book of every guest we've ever. <laughs> okay. Well, I um, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of putting all my the, the the Ben Hall prequel scripts. I'm thinking of putting them on Amazon because I know a lot of people were disappointed when I couldn't make them, and they really wanted to see what I was going to do with the other two movies, which would have made those three movies, a trilogy and, 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 and an overarching story yeah. sort of encompassing the Bushrangers of that time. Cause they all knew each other, but I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll never make that now. So it's a, it was a real shame that I couldn't do it, but I thought I could make the scripts available for those that are interested to see what would have been. Um, I did when I was, <clears throat> I'd written the cost and we were literally like, let's go film it. And then COVID hit and the whole year was, there's nothing to do in lockdown and I had nothing to do. So I was, I said uh, to my, I was complaining about that online and my producer said, why don't you write a shark movie, Matt? Uh, Shark movies, I can sell a shark movie like that. (laughs) And I said, oh, I was like, get, I'm not writing a shark movie. I hate (laughs) shark movies. You know, shark, what a load of rubbish. I'm never going to stoop that low. And because um, there's only one good shark movie, it's Jaws. Exactly. And, and I thought, and, you, and the plot of every shark movie since is that same boring, predictable formula, a bunch of gorgeous people go on holiday, the boat or the aeroplane flips over or they get stuck somewhere in the water and then they just got to wait for the shark to come along and one by one take everybody and that's yeah. it. There's not, and I thought that's the most boring. I'm never doing that. Mm-hmm. and he said well it, i can sell a shark movie and so because nothing else was happening i thought all right it's time to crack that problem 
How can I make a shark movie that I'd want to see? How can I make Jaws without making Jaws but not make it anything like another shark film you've ever seen? And so I finally cracked that code, wrote the script with my co-writer in about three or four weeks. We got to first draft because we found the story and then took it to him and he was like, yeah, this is great. This is great. And within... And within, um, once he took it to the marketplace, buying, buying, buying. They're buying it. We've got all these pre-sales on this shark movie. <laughs> so that'll probably be the next movie I make straight after the cost is finished. I'll go on to making this shark movie um, <laughs> because the market gobbled it up straight away because it was a shark movie. I've never, had a, I've never had a screenplay get jumped on so quickly by the marketplace. For years I've been shopping around other movies and yeah. you get rejection bring up a shark movie and everyone's like, oh, I'll take it, I'll take it. So there you go. Yeah, shark well, movie is hell. They keep making Sharknadoes, so. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, they're garbage, but they um, they sell. But that yeah. I, I certainly don't want to make a Sharknado movie or anything like it. Oh, God, no. Um, yeah, it was really just about um, finding a story that you could take seriously, but that would also be interesting, you know. Um that happened to have a shark in it. So yeah. Well, we're going pretty long than I anticipated. So we might look. I'd love to talk to you about talk about Star Wars and get you back on sometime to talk about all things Star Wars. Sure. But um, why don't we wrap up with basically the idea that Disney come up to you with a truckload of money and say, "Make us a film." No, no I'm not going to be anal and be like. It has to be this, it has to be that. They won't get involved at all. They just give you the money and they say, Matt, make us a film. Oh, okay. Oh, crikey. Make us a movie. Any movie I want. Uh, I'd probably make my Jason and the Argonauts remake. Mm. I wrote a screenplay a few years ago, uh, Jason and the Argonauts. I, I, I love the old movie. Yeah. And I read the Greek mythology, like from the original, like the Greek story. And I thought, yeah, you could make this a lot. You could do a lot with this, especially with modern effects and everything. So I actually wrote a Jason the Argonaut screenplay for a huge, epic uh, Jason the Argonauts movie that sort of combined the best of the old movie and, but also really went leaned into the original Greek mythology. Hmm. So I'd probably say, please let me make my Jason the Argonauts um, movie. That's what I would say. And because that you... would cost $150 million. <laughs> <laughs> and will you hire um, or reach out to Sam Rockwell? <laughs> that one? Oh, why not? It, why not? He can play Zeus or something. That'll be fun. <laughs> oh, Sam, Sam Rockwell is Zeus. I can see it now. No, just so, to... um, yeah, so that, that's probably what I'd do if Disney gave me the money track. Or I would say, don't give me $150 million. Just come back every two years with $10 million yeah. just so I can just make $10 million movies. I'd be happy making little $10 million movies the rest of my life. That's like the equivalent um, of, of wishing for more wishes, isn't it? So, it is a bit. It I like bit. it, though. But I'd rather... I, I'm not really big into the, the big blockbuster Marvel movies, um, the bloated budget gigantic things. I, I, I'd rather happily make $10 million movies. Yeah every two, three years for the rest of my life. I, I like the smaller, more contained ideas. So yeah. the big ones tend to get out of hand, but yeah. um, but that's me. 
Yeah, and so I, suppose, I, I suppose a lot of those movies could be made on a smaller budget anyway. Yeah. Yeah, they don't need to spend that much money, but it's become part of the business model and uh, a lot of people get very rich because the movies may cost $200 million, but you're not watching $200 million on the screen. Yeah. You're watching $100 million on the screen yeah. and the other 100 is going into all the producers and the actors' back pockets yeah. before you yeah. even get to make the movie. Yeah. So, yeah, that it's just a, a, a good way for a lot of people to get real rich. Yeah. So, anyway... Well, thank you so much for coming on, yes, Matthew. Yes, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks, guys. It's been fun chatting. Yeah, and um, just for our listeners, um, is there any way they can follow up, follow you or keep up to date with what you're doing? Uh, at this stage, the best way to keep them up, what I'm doing is uh, if there anything happens with Ben Hall, is just follow the Legend of Ben Hall Facebook page. There is also a Facebook page for the cost. Yep. And... Um, there will be updates on how that film's going periodically on there. That's probably the best way, just, just to follow those two pages. Um, and occasionally check in on IMDb and see what I'm up to. Yep. So thanks again. Thank um, you. No worries, guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to support Stories the True and the Fictional, you can do so by heading on over to buymeacoffee.com slash S-T-T-A-T-F. That's the acronym for Stories the True and the Fictional there. You can do a one-time donation or sign up for a monthly membership. Whatever you're comfortable with. With your support, we can keep this show up and running and bring you the awesome content we do every week. So if you can, head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash S-T-T-A-T-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of Stories, the True and the Fictional.